Hi, family, and welcome to the kitchen table for another episode of Normal with Autism, the podcast where we invite you to experience the joy in the journey. In this episode, we have some very special guests, and we are going to kind of jump right into it. Uh, Today, we have lawyers and advocates joining us from Albite Weicker, and they are our special education law partners. They're going to hang out with us for a little while tonight, and we're going to go through some questions, and hopefully we'll have some other folks joining us um, in this live event, and they can get some questions answered that they might have. Sarah, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Do you want me to just jump right into it and introduce some of our special guests? Uh, I mean, I guess if you're done talking to me, sure. It's good to see it's good to see your face and I'm glad we could all get together tonight to do this. So uh, I'm gonna go like in order of my zoom screen. Um, the first guest that we have is Lauren Sabo. Lauren, say hi. Hi everybody. thanks okay. for having us tonight. Thank you so much. Can you take just a second and kind of introduce yourselves uh, to the folks who are listening tonight and then, our friends who are maybe going to listen to this later on once we get it up on the podcast website. Absolutely. Uh, I'm Lauren, and I am an attorney over at Albite Waker, uh, but I am a former special education teacher. So I was a high school multi-intensive special education teacher out in Denver Public Schools, um, although I'm originally from Ohio, so made my way back here for law school, um, and now do special education, education, um, and still do some anti-human trafficking work uh, for the state of Ohio as well. Wow. That is amazing. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And shout out to you for Colorado Connection. We Sarah and I have a friend in Colorado that we love very much. So, do you, I miss we, the mountains, I have to say. I love Ohio, but um, you know there are some days that, yeah, the mountains are calling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally get that. Uh, and then our next guest, Danielle, she's no stranger to our podcast or our Facebook page. Say hi, Danielle. Hi, everybody. Nice to have you back. Can you um, just give yourself a quick intro for folks who might be new listening tonight? Or Sure. Um, my background is in school psychology, so I am in my eighth year as a school psychologist. Um, and in my first year being an advocate, with Abbott Weicker, and I'm loving everything that I've been able to do so far and all the families I've been helping. Thank you so much. And we love having you every time you visit with us. You're always so helpful and knowledgeable. So thanks for coming back and joining us for this event tonight. And then finally, we have uh, another brand new uh, guest here. It's Mark. Hello, Mark. Hi, thank you for having me. And you're you're also brand new, just like Lauren, to any of our listeners uh, tonight. Would you mind introducing yourself for just a minute? Sure. Uh, My name is Mark Weicker. I'm uh, an attorney, specifically an education and special education attorney with Albite Weicker, the same firm as Lauren and Danielle. And I am a former school side attorney where I represented school districts around the state through a firm that represented schools. And then in 2014, so about six years ago, um, me and a law partner, Leslie Albite, uh, started the law practice and we uh, started representing students. And and that's what we do. And I'd say one common thread that we uh, have the three of us on tonight, me, Lauren and Danielle, is that we all have school side experience. So. Uh, I think in some cases it makes us sympathetic to what the schools are dealing with, and and in other cases it helps us understand what we have to do on the on the parent side uh, to help get what we need for the for the student. Yes, absolutely. I appreciate so much, um, and just you know, for full disclosure, I have been a client of the law firm. I've worked with Danielle most recently. Um, And I appreciate that every time that we go into a situation, um, Danielle's expertise in talking about like both sides of the table is very important. Um, As a matter of fact, tonight's uh, episode is called Collaboration, Collaboration, Collaboration. 
So that's kind of what um, we're focused on here. Um, and I'm, I'm really um, hopeful that this will help people kind of with the fearful aspect that everybody might be dealing with right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and so I'm hopeful that going through some of these questions, some of these different articles that we've seen that um, people will get some really, I know they will get really good information from the three of you guys. So I really appreciate you joining us. So look forward to it. Yeah. Um, so to get started, you know, first I want to give a shout out to all of our teachers and special edu- especially our special educators. I, I know personally, um, with my son's school that our teachers have been working tirelessly to try to provide support and kind of help through this very, very challenging time. So, so first a shout out to them, Sarah, have you kind of had that same experience with, with, uh, your son's school? Yeah. So, um, we just switched Owen to a different school in January and the new school that we are with has been incredible. Um, we're actually doing in-home services. Uh, we really went back and forth on social distancing is so important, but also the mental health of our child is very important. Um, so we have people from his school coming in for six hours a day and they do his behavior plan. They do all of his like Zoom classes, speech, all of that. And I, I don't know what we would do if they weren't available for that. Like, I don't know how people are getting by. Well, and that's, for the most part, I think I've heard in the groups that we belong to, like the parent Facebook pages we belong to, many people have expressed the same thing that you and I are saying. You know, they're getting support. They're getting um, not obviously exactly what they need, but they recognize the schools are doing the best. Yeah. Um, I, I have also heard, though, that there are folks out there that are very unhappy with how the schools have been kind of intervening in this time. Um, and um, hopefully with anybody listening tonight and participating tonight or anybody going to listen to this later on when we put it on, up on the podcast website, you know, they'll get some information that will be helpful to them if they feel um, that things are, are less than, if you will, from, from their schools that they're, they're participating with. Um, and within a few days, actually, of the schools being shut down, I think we all started to see the articles kind of floating around. Some of them were um, the new coronavirus package could unravel protections for students with disabilities. Um, with schools closed, kids with disabilities are more vulnerable than ever. Um, there was one that just recently came out and one that really kind of inspired this event that I wanted to do today. Um, to access online services, New Jersey students with disabilities must promise not to sue. Wow. So I saw that and I was like, we really have to talk to our friends, <laughs> our, our legal and, and well, advocate we friends. We're trying to like figure out what does this mean? And then we were like, wait, we have experts we can ask. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's turn it over to the experts and kind of ask um, Lauren and, and Mark and Danielle for just a minute. Have you guys seen these articles? Have you had anybody come talk to you about it? Or do you have any reactions to any of those titles? I mean, I know with the one in New Jersey, we all also got that article sent to us. And so I think we all have the same reaction as you guys did. You know, what in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, as a parent, I would be extremely alarmed in signing away, you know, any of your rights when it comes to getting services for your children. That is not acceptable and it's illegal. And so I'm not exactly sure what, what law firm they're working with and who's okaying that. Um, but it is very alarming. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it was, a. Uh... <clears throat> Just from a, an attorney perspective, it was a pretty outlandish overreach, I think, on the part of that particular law firm. And, I, and we should say, too, that um, it said in the article that it, it, the waivers that the school districts were having uh, parents sign came from one particular law firm that represented about 30 districts in the state. So it's a relatively small portion of the districts in the state that were doing it. But, you know, um, Basically, what it was saying is that we weren't we won't even attempt to provide 
uh, an education to your child with a disability unless you sign away these legal rights. Um, so, and that, and by the way, that included uh, legal rights under IDEA. So, um, you know, I, it said in the article that um, the justification that the firm gave was um, that they were worried about what liabilities might exist for student privacy and what liabilities might exist for injuries for students who um, take education remotely uh, or take therapies remotely. And I think that's understandable. Maybe this is the compassionate side from this from the school district um, representation I've done in the past, but uh, you can craft a, a, a liability waiver narrowly so that those parents weren't waiving all their rights uh, for their students under IDEA. And that's what, of course, reasonably all the parent advocacy groups were worried about was all the right the, the rights under IDEA that would have been waived along with everything else. Mm -hmm. And something that, you know, I tell parents, um, especially when it comes to these different special education documents, you know, write on them. Um, there's no reason you can't write on them, right? So um, if you disagree with something, because I've heard of some districts um, also doing like prior written notices, but in a very blanket, you know, generalized form, right? It's going out to every student that's on an IEP saying kind of similar things that some of those articles had alluded to. Um, you know, maybe not quite that extreme, but still, you know, basically asking parents to waive rights, um, you know, and that that shouldn't be the case. A prior written notice should be individualized, um, you know, so it needs to be meaningful. So them just doing this this blanket statement, that's not meaningful for that child. So, you know, of course, of course, we, you know, we counsel um, families and would tell families, you know, don't waive your rights. Um, so if you if you kind of get that gut feeling right, that something like this isn't probably right you know, that probably is your, your spidey sense. You're probably right. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, we are concerned about that type of thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I definitely would say don't waive your rights and you can write on those documents too. So maybe, you know, you can say, I agree to these changes for COVID-19 pandemic only. Right. And then say, you know, I'm not waiving my rights. That's a really, that's a very interesting point. Um, and I kind of want to stick a pin in that for a second, maybe come back to it in terms of um, what's, what's going to happen maybe when this is all over or as we start to emerge from kind of our survival mode in this pandemic, what what's concerns might be in the special education field as we're kind of moving forward. And um, I do want to just mention really quickly, because uh, I forgot to kind of at the top of everything, if any of our participants do have questions, please feel free to go ahead and type them in the chat. And we have some general questions to keep the discussion going, but we're, we're concerned for you first and foremost. So we will read those out loud as we're going. And I think we already have uh, a couple of questions. So let me, um, let me get to those real quick. It says, uh, I have a question for a client I have. Um, a student who needs to be evaluated for an IEP but was not attending school enough for evaluation was actually facing truancy charges. But now with no one at school and you want your child evaluated, how does this happen? How can you get an evaluation? And I know that evaluations are a big thing on everyone's mind right now. So, okay, so... Did they sign consent for the evaluation to occur? Was that consent signed? So whoever asked that, because that's going to be the big question. If you signed consent for that evaluation to start, then that 60-day timeline still is going on. So even though they're not in school, every single day, every single calendar day that ticks by is in that 60-day timeline. And um, you know, Betsy DeVos actually came out, I don't know, yesterday or the day before, and said that she is not granting waivers. I, we did we did see that. And in response to your question there, it says, um, no, um, didn't even get that far. The student hadn't been at school. School kept saying they needed him to be there for 30 days before they could do an evaluation. Um, and, and part of that is when you look at eligibility for special education services, you do have to look at attendance and you have to look at lack of instruction. And so the school district probably would not be able to say that that student's difficulties are not due to lack of instruction if they haven't been in school. 
Um, so I can see where the school would have said that. And now that we're not in school, they're not going to start that evaluation. I can guarantee you that. Um, they're going to they're gonna postpone that and they're going to push it until the fall. Okay. Would you, would you say anything else about... Um... I, would the person go get a, like an outside evaluation, not one done at school? I would say at this point, no, because it's going to be out of that person's pocket. And that school district is not going to even look at that evaluation until the fall anyway. Um, gotcha. So they can do that, of course. But I would say at this point in time, your best bet is to wait until the fall and then make sure you put in writing a request for an evaluation. Um and push for it at that point in time. And then of course, down the road, if you don't agree with the results, then you can have, you know, that independent evaluation at the, at the district's cost. But it, I mean, it's unfortunate because even coming back to the fall, I can still see that district saying, well, you weren't in school and then we had the coronavirus shut down and they're probably gonna still want that student to be in school for a little bit before they mm -hmm. evaluate. Yeah. And, about and the, um, truancy though, like could they use that as, I don't know, some kind of explanation to fight the truancy charge? I would, uh, with, with truancy now, they should be um, delivering letters to the parents, even on excused absences, uh, re kind of regardless of the absence, if they're, uh, you know, really early on, I think it starts after five, but don't quote me on that, where they have to offer an absence intervention, both team and a plan. Okay. So. Um, to get to truancy is about the last step and about seven steps. So, um, you know, I, I don't I think the, the truancy situation is probably the ship has sailed now. But for the fall, if there are um, absence or tardy related problems, then the district should be pulling together an absence intervention team, which is, is a fantastic change in the law to what it used to be, which was a referral um, to court for the parents. So um, I would look for those letters and take advantage of anything that the district is willing to do. And by the way, they have to do with the absence intervention team, they have to pull, pull together. Mm -hmm. And to piggyback on that too, looking at that team should be looking at why that student is absent from school. And if they're absent due to a disability, then that is another sort of card in that parent's pocket to say we need an evaluation at this point in time. Um, Very good point. Yeah. I'll just say though too, I've seen, you know, districts being creative. So I know there's like a lot of concern around, you know, can you do an FBA, you know, a functional behavior assessment, right? Because that's something that, um, you know, most of the time, right? Those are, are done in school and, and you need some pretty significant observation of that student. Um, but actually, you know, I've seen them being done virtually because part of the student's learning at this point, if it's online and they're struggling online, right? And in that home environment, you know, a really good, um, uh, you know, clinical person that's trained in this expert, they can still do an evaluation virtually. And some districts are being creative and they're saying, hey, you know, I'm training this. I can still do that. Even though it's not the traditional learning environment in school, this is still that student's learning environment and they're having, you know, behavior issues. So, you know, I think there are ways to be creative potentially um, and still, you know, do evaluations that some districts are doing record reviews, right? I mean, they're, it is really, really hard, um, but, you know, especially for an initial um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have seen districts really kind of step to the plate and say, you know what, this isn't going to stop us. Cool. So it sounds like, um, it just almost depends on the school and, and what they might be able to offer you, what they might be able to work with. Is that what I'm getting? And it depends on the student too. I mean, because there may, depending on the types of assessments that you're getting done, like Lauren mentioned, a behavior assessment might be able that you might be able to do that somewhat remotely or virtually, but you know, other assessments, if they require in-person, um, you know, are going to have to wait until the classes resume. Gotcha. Um, let's go on to another question from one of our participants. Um, they state, I have two IEP meetings scheduled for two of my children next week. First of all, God bless you for that to have one, let alone two. Um, they are offering for me to do a Zoom or telephone conference. Her first question is, which should I do, the Zoom or the telephone conference? Uh, 
We should take a vote because I think we might get different answers. <laughs> I definitely vote Zoom. I've been in a number of Zoom IEP meetings. Um, and I think seeing everyone's face, their facial expressions, I think that really adds to the meeting versus being on the telephone. So that would be my vote. I'm with you. Yeah, Zoom. I, I agree. Zoom if possible. Yep. Okay. So definitely Zoom wins the vote. Um, I Don't cannot. controlling your face. Oh, control. <laughs> just, <I'm fine. laughs> Sarah might vote for telephone. Just so. <laughs> like right. the chat feature too. When we're if we're on Zooms with clients and stuff, it's funny because now we can chat with them, right? Oh. So we can, as opposed to kind of you know taking a step out or whispering at the table, we can just you know tell them something via the chat feature, you know, and the school doesn't know. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, okay, and then the next part of the question is, and do all the specialists need to be at the meeting, um, just the same as like when when they meet in person? So you still have the four required members. So you have the intervention specialist, the gen ed teacher, your district rep, and then um, the parent, of course. And then OT, PT, speech will be invited, but they don't have to attend just like an in-person meeting. Okay. I would, um, you want them there, you know what I mean? Make it a point to put that in writing, right? Um, with whoever you're communicating with the school to schedule this and just, you know, tell them, hey, I'd really like X teacher. You know, I've asked for multiple gen ed teachers to be there on occasion, you know, if it's not super disruptive in terms of the timing. Um, but right now, you know, that's, it's really helpful if that's, those are people that are part of that student's team and, you know, really there with them um, doing the learning, whether it's distance or not. So, you know, I've asked for other other gen ed teachers, even knowing that they weren't the ones initially invited. That's a good point. Yeah, I, whenever I go into an IEP meeting, I always look for the people to be there definitely who know my child and who can like speak to what they're learning, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. The, the follow-up to this um, question in terms of whether Zoom or telephone and then who has to be there, um, they said that they're fearful to meet under the circumstances and make a plan when we don't even know if we'll return in the fall. Mm -hmm. Is there any anything you can speak to? I know none of you have your crystal balls, but if you do, can you tell us when we're all going to go back to school? <laughs> and what, what well, this means. I don't think we can say exactly when, but we can, you know, um, you, you can draft the IEP with some flexibility or uh, plan to meet again, whether it be in person or virtually, when they do make the decision that classes will resume. So, um, you know, if you have to meet now and change things now, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, there are, there may be some items you can put in related to goals that say, um, until class, you know, this will happen until classes resume. And then when classes resume, X will happen. So it doesn't necessarily have to be date specific, so long as your, you know, annual IEP is not between now and when school starts. So, um, you know, I, I would, I would go ahead, I would certainly go ahead and meet and make any adjustments you need to now, and then maybe do that again before school starts if you have to. Mm -hmm. I think most districts are writing their IEPs like they typically would, assuming school is going to start in the fall. So I would anticipate that those IEPs are going to look very much like she's used to them looking when it comes to services and where the services are going to be located and the minutes that are going to be offered. Um, and I have not heard of many districts amending their IEPs for the coronavirus. Um, but I mean, who knows what fall looks like, right? So that may they may come back to the table and ask for an amendment, but. I'm betting they're probably going to write those IEPs as if that child's going back to school in the fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I mentioned before, you know, if, if you're uncomfortable with that, I think like Mark had said, you know, just you're okay to ask them to add language that, you know, this is only until we go back to school or, you know, um, I'm only agreeing to this based on COVID-19, you know, something to that effect. Um, you know, and like I said, you can, you know, when you sign your name, you can kind of write that there. I mean, um, you know, you always have that option or to disagree, right? If you disagree with something on that IEP, you have that right. So what I'm hearing overall is go ahead, take the meeting, and then make sure you're documenting. And then don't be afraid to ask to come back as it gets closer towards the fall or in the fall once school started, hopefully. Right. And I think in most cases, we're going to recommend... Um, and we'll talk 
probably a little bit more about this, but you know, documenting what's happening and then uh, having a meeting at you know close to when school starts anyway to discuss what pro what type of progress, if any, was made. You know how that was done, whether it was with the help of the parent or, um, or otherwise, and then discussing how that can be made up if it has to be made up. So compensatory education. Okay, great. All right. Uh, next uh, question from our participants tonight. Um, so one of our participants, the little guy, isn't doing well after updating his IEP team. They wrote back and told us, uh, after updating his IEP, the team wrote back and they told us that the emotional well-being of the little guy was the most important and that the goals at home should be centered around emotional regulation and coping skills. Really knowing he isn't participating, it sounds like right now, can they use um, this against us? And if he's missing school... Is there any loopholes or anything to get him into ESY services if they're offered in some capacity? I think for the first part of that question, I, I would agree that the social emotional well-being of your child is more important than the academic um, aspect of it. Um, again, I'm a mom and, and, you know, there are some days where we're just getting through and it's probably not the best effort, but it's done. And I think a lot of districts aren't even taking grades at this point in time because I'm sure a lot of you have seen, you know, grades are kind of equal to what they have access um, to when it comes to technology and whatnot. So I would agree if, if pushing your child to do all those academic things that the school is asking them to do, I would take a step back. You know, if you're seeing your child push and and spiral and withdraw, um, then I would I would agree to take a look at the social emotional well-being first before the academics. And to answer the question about whether they can hold that against you, no, no, absolutely not. And I don't think most districts will. I mean, you got to consider the parents who are at home and helping are lucky to be able to do that. You know, some parents are working or taking care of other siblings or, um, you know, working from home. So just whether or not you're available to help the therapist or the instructor or the tutor or whatever is the first question. And there's certainly no obligation on the part of the parent um, to, to provide the education at all. Although, of course, we have the best interest of our children at heart. So we want to do everything we can to avoid any regression and to provide the education, even if it's completely modified in some way. But that's not the obligation of the parent. And um, although the, your child may regress academically or emotionally or otherwise, you know, it's not going to be held against you. What you have to look at is documenting what you're doing. Um, and then being prepared uh, when, when classes do resume to have an IEP meeting and talk about how this is going to be made up and if it can be made up. You know, some students might not be able to handle uh, an additional academic load or social and emotional goal. So, you know, you got to consider on an individual basis whether or not it can be made up. Mm -hmm. And I'll just add, um, you know, as a former teacher, too, I would say, you know, be creative. I mean, at the end of the day, that that's really just what we have to do in general for our kids. Right. Um, but also, especially during this time. And I know that's hard to do um, for parents, but I think that's why, you know, it's OK to ask for a, a quick, you know, maybe not super quick, but um, Zoom call or conference call with a member of the IEP team or actually, you know, take some of their time and, and ask them, oh, what are other options, you know, for your child during this time or maybe who sometimes, you know, um, that's what it boils down to is the, who the provider is. And maybe that child, you know, for whatever reason, just isn't connecting, but there's somebody at that school, you know, that probably maybe does have the time right now to be able to work with that kid a little bit more one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, and offer more time that would actually help them, um, you know, in the situation. And I know you had asked about ESY too. So, you know, that, that should be on the table for discussion. If, if there, you know, there should be data, um, well, obviously, it's tough for schools to be collecting data right now. So if they hadn't collected it based on, you know, winter break, for example, um, for regression and recruitment, you know, that's something that I know, again, it's hard to ask a parent to do. But if you're able to just, you know, be able to collect baseline data to, to say, you know, your child right, kind of isn't learning, you know, and it's taking longer for them, which most kids probably will be in that situation regardless. Um, so I've seen a lot of districts, you know, being creative with the ESY. 
um, offering it virtually, just a bunch of different options. So, you know, I still think that should be on the table and the school district needs to be able to, you know, tell you why your, your child wouldn't be eligible for those, that service. Yeah, and if you don't have the data, you can ask something you can ask for, you know, before or right after school starts is something to be collected. You know, you'll have a progress report, hopefully, uh, maybe not, but hopefully you have a progress report from before schools were closed. Uh, and then um, you can gather some data when schools reopen to say, okay, this is where we were and this is where we are. How do we make that up? Because I mean, like isn't always during the summer either. So that could be other breaks, you know, winter break that your child is getting those services to. Well, I think Mark, like you said, with the progress reports, if you look at the, the last progress report you got, we'll just say March, right, from January through March, and then you look at the one you're going to get in the fall in November, December, and if there's no growth, that's a big red flag, where I think ESY is definitely a, a bigger conversation, because, you know, and I guess we're, we're going we're gonna to go through that and see how districts, you know, what they do with ESY, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what these districts are going to decide when it comes to the instruction that was provided and if that impacts ESY decisions. I don't know. Yeah. It'll be I think about ESY while we're on the subject. Um, okay. So, for example, my son started his new school in January. His IEP was, we had an IEP meeting like his second day of school because um, that's just when it was due. Uh, and at the time, we talked we'll decide on ESY later. In the past, he's gotten summer camp at his old school. We have a school contract. Um, so our local school district paid for summer camp and that was his ESY. Um, so they're like, we don't have enough data for this new school yet. Let's come back to it. Now, obviously summer camp is not, may or may not be happening at his school. They don't know yet. What if, I mean, his last day at the school district is know, May something, and they decide mid-June, okay, we're going to try for summer camp. Can I then go to them and say, hey, will you guys cover this with ESY, or is it too late since the school year's over? So ask for ESY for this summer, for like this summer? Yeah. Like, when do we have to make that decision, not even knowing if summer camp is going to happen? Good question. Well, I would always get, you know, get it on the table, right? As, if, as soon as you know that that's what, you know, the, the goal would be this summer um, and at least kind of get, you know, get the approval. Yes. Right. And then obviously if it doesn't happen, you know, maybe there's another option or something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I don't think there's a reason to wait necessarily. Cause again, I think schools, I've heard everything from schools canceling ESY to, like I said, virtual to, you know, they're right now, school districts, um, you know, they're struggling because they're trying to figure out budgetary constraints and who they need to hire and, you know, what it is going to look like for them. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that they, most of them, I, I, to some extent, you know, are still going to be offering something. We just don't know exactly what it looks like and your district will be different. But yeah, I would say there's no reason to wait. Yeah. Yeah. The other advantage of getting approval is that if it doesn't happen, then you have something to document exactly what you're missing. You know, part of the challenge is, you know, what am I missing and how do we make that up? Well, if you miss summer camp, you know how many days that was going to be and how long it was going to be. So you, you have at least a baseline to say, this is what we need to make up. Yeah. And I so have, oh, yeah, Tara, I was going to say Tara participant who asked about um, the ESY and kind of the emotional coping skills and regulation being um, important also had said, should I get documentation from the pediatrician counselor to document what's going on? And everybody, I see everybody shaking their heads. So uh, I think documentation is probably key in in this current situation. Yeah, it's um, so first you want to document what you're doing. If you can get some support from an outside professional, like a pediatrician, fantastic. But then you also have to inform the district of, of your concerns and or what you think are deficits. I mean, you just, you can't just sit back and wait to pounce in the fall on the school district. You have to at least communicate those things, even if you know pretty sure, you're pr or, or that you're pretty sure that, you know, there's nothing they can do about it now. Um, you just don't want them, you know, the school district to have the defense that, you know, look, we could have helped you in this way or this way, but you never told us that you were worried about that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, schools and parents, you're supposed to, make an effort to collaborate, um, like the title of the podcast. Um, but you know, that goes both ways. So 
you know, schools should be communicating with you through the teacher or whoever the point of contact is. And you have to communicate back both what your concerns are and then what you think the deficits are so that you're prepared and ready with documentation in the fall. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Districts still have those, again, still have those experts, whether they, you know, hire them out or they're within the district. But, you know, a BCBA, um, that would be, you know, I, I just, I think there's no reason to not ask for something like that or, you know, ask for the district to actually kind of see if they can do some of those assessments, even virtually, because that's the whole point. You know, if that child is struggling with the current educational situation, um, you know, what can we do for them as opposed to, like Mark said, you know, you don't want to sit on your rights and wait till the fall. Um, if you can be a little bit more proactive now. Love it. Okay. One other important point that might be worth making is that, um, you know, you really have an opportunity right now as a parent to like, you know, help the the entire IEP team. You know, you know, the parent a lot of times is evaluating what the entire IEP team is doing. And then, um, you know, it's difficult sometimes to come in and say, well, this could be done better. We could have done more of this and less of this. But here, parents who have both who are physically able and mentally able to help in a particular subject and then available to do it really have an opportunity to show the team that they're willing to do whatever it takes to provide the education. And then again, if you document that and come to the table and say, you know, I did all these things, but yet we still have this deficit. It's really, I think, good faith on the part of the parents um, to be able to say, look, I, I contributed the best I could in this time. I think it can really pay off in the end. And I, I appreciate I appreciate hearing that because I know that speaks to kind of my current situation is that we are, I, I feel like I'm working pretty hard to get my kiddo what he needs during the day. And again, the school is very supportive. He's just having a lot, a lot of difficulty right now. Um, and I have been school provided kind of a log of like you write down what you've worked on, how long you worked on it, that kind of thing. And it, I think that's been helpful to document, to show them. And I've emailed them too, to say like, hey, we're doing these things, but it's still really difficult for him to learn right now. He's just kind of all over the place. Um, so that's been um, my experience in terms of getting those um, summer supports that hopefully we'll get and that we definitely need is that once I started documenting those things and sharing that, that kind of made the case for him to be able to get summer supports this summer. And the experience on my end was that the district or the the school that he goes to had to decide first, like this is when we need contracts done. They reached out to the district and then it was kind of a back and forth conversation from them. So I would also say to folks, if you're if your kiddo's at a private school and not with their district, checked with your private school to make sure that they've reached out to the district to start that conversation as well, to say, how are we going to support this kiddo over the summer if, in fact, summer services will be offered in some capacity? Um, I think the final question in that part, again, f- for our, our participant who has the little guy missing school, having emotional regulation stuff, does he need an assessment if we know this is a mental health issue and are we uh, and we are in a medication change assessment via the school or IEP team? So it sounds like we're going back to maybe that evaluation piece of things through the school or IEP team. Does he need an assessment if they know it's a mental health issue and a medication change? Can anyone speak to that? Um, I mean, I would say... I'm just trying to trying to think to myself what an assessment would look like coming from the school team. I mean, again, you can have a BCBA come in and you know observe the student and see what's going on. Um, but with or without an assessment, if that district has mental health support within their district, you can always add that to the IEP as a related service. Um, so many of the districts I work with, they work with like Sentero and different companies where they have mental health therapists on campus who come in and that student can then work with that mental health therapist. So that is something that can be added to an IEP under related services without an assessment if the team decides that's necessary. Um, but again, you know, I, I think that this time for all of us, for all of our children is just difficult. And so as a district, I can see where they would say, let's wait until the fall and hopefully we're back to normal, right? Um, And then see how the mental health component is at that point in time. And if it's still 
a big impact to his day, then maybe doing some further assessments, whether it is an FBA or having that BCBA come in, um, doing some rating scales, whatever it may be, to add a goal perhaps to the IEP to work on that. Um, but I think at this point in time, because um, kids are having a hard time with the upheaval of their routine and their structure, and again, nothing in their world is normal anymore. And so I can see a lot of kids having a hard time with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think counseling, you know, is great. I think a lot of, um, you know, some of my clients, they actually have really, really liked the, um, the telehealth counseling. They think it's great, um, you know, and they're able to kind of text and do in the chat box and the video. And they've actually, you know, like it better than kind of any other option that they had had prior to this. Um, so, yeah, if there's no change of disability, um, you know, really at that point, like Danielle said, it can be added to the IEP as a related service um, with minutes with somebody. And, you know, again, just any documentation that you have is only going to help the school. Right. So if you have, you know, from the pediatrician, from somebody else being able to say, you know, it's it's, you know, and as well as yourself. I mean, you you are at this point, you know, as the parent with that child the most. So same thing, um, you know, Tara, like you had said, documenting and just being able to provide the school with that that's going to that's going to help to show them, hey, this really is a need. And I, I do think they take that, you know, schools take mental health really seriously this day and age and they want to help kids. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, those are the questions that we had specifically so far, and I think we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, I'd like to um, transition into kind of some more general questions, if we could, just to kind of close things out, if no one else has any more specific questions that'll come through. Um, when it comes to maybe a parent who's pretty stressed out right now, um, I know me personally, I have a difficult time when I'm like, my feelings are very intense and I know I'm going into maybe like a, an important meeting in terms of IEPs, things like that. And of course, even now with how stressful things are, um, I mean, everybody's just struggling. Um, would you guys have any um, specific, well, not maybe specific, but any like language or any um, pointers or tips that you would give to a parent who might be going into an IEP meeting, who might be trying to request these meetings to get things back on track, um, anything that would kind of help them to steer them towards collaboration and not um, either going in guns blazing or not, not feeling like they could advocate for their kid, anything that you might... Um, want to help them in terms of language or any specific tips? Yeah, I could, uh, you know, I think we've touched on a couple of them already, but, you know, really the, the aim is to get everything you can done now, if you're physically, mentally available, uh, and then available through work to, to help out, get what you can done, um, but then document everything that you've done and then inform the school of any areas of concern uh, and then inform them of any support you have. Um, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you asked about language. Um, I'd really avoid trying to use anything magical in terms of language. It doesn't have to be legal, but certainly do it in writing. I mean, um, the missed phone calls or the phone calls you make and the conversations you have really aren't going to help. If you can, you know, have an email trail of, you know, look, I emailed you two weeks ago about this. I never heard back. I emailed you a week ago about this concern. And we, we try to address it this way, you, you're going to have to have a trail, not only so that you can present it to the school when you're talking about, you know, how we get back to normal in the fall, but so that you can remember, because, you know, you're going through this period of time that is stressful. You have 800 different things going on and you may not be working. Um, so you'll want to look, have a look back and have a paper trail so you can remember exactly what happened when, because, you know, I don't know about any of you, but I, you know, even a week ago for me is, you know, it may as well have been a month ago. <laughs> All the days are blurring together at this point. <laughs> okay, I love that. So definitely um, documentation is what I'm hearing. And Mark, you actually kind of magically answered a question without knowing that you were answering a question. So good job to you. Um, another one of our participants was just asking about um, a second, their second grader getting speech intervention and, and the speech in it's, intervention isn't really happening. How should they document this kind of the lack of help? So you're saying emails really help in terms of documentation 
um, any kind of paper trail you can make is what I'm hearing. Yeah, to whoever the point of contact is. Some schools have designated the teacher, some schools the special education coordinator or the special education director, you know, whoever the point of contact is, um, just reach out to that person and let them know what isn't happening and what is happening and whether what is happening is happening correctly mm -hmm. or, or, or helping, I should say. Right, then that might be that compensatory um, you know, education that at some point would have to take place then. Um, I would just add from, you know, from Mark's point, um, for these IEP meetings, you know, one, I always use the word team, right? I mean, just because truly it really is a team, right? So we, we're talking about being collaborative, but it really is. So going into it and, you know, just setting the tone that we are a team, it doesn't mean that you might not disagree on occasion, you know, but of course you do that in a way that, you know, is is still, you know, being respectful. Um, right. But I tell parents, I mean, make a bulleted list. You know, I, I also prepare for court sometimes and, um, you know, I'll do right pre-trial, um, hearings and hearing notes. And it's the same thing though. It doesn't have to be anything extensive, but, you know, put down, what are your top three or five goals from this meeting? And honestly, during this time, you're not, you know, you don't need to hide the ball. So you can even send those in advance and say, here are my five concerns, right. Or here are my three things that I really like to accomplish at this IEP meeting today. And I think districts really appreciate that. We do that sometimes with the attorneys just because then we know by the time we go in there, they've already been able to research and sometimes get most of the answers and, and probably get most of the things fixed and find solutions before we go into the meeting. So we've saved a ton of time. And then it's, you know, you're just checking your list off. Oh, great. You know, this is a good thing. Um, and my last piece of advice for that would just be really, you know, making it student centered. So I know kids, um, some, you know, it's a varying degree as to who has the kind of amount of work right now. Um, some kids are getting it done within an hour, you know, an hour a week. Um, some are spending six hours. It just depends. But um, as a teacher, I used to have my students give a presentation and, you know, it didn't matter if they were nonverbal or what the case was. We, you know, we worked around all of that. Um, so they actually started their IEP meeting off with a presentation. And I think that could be a great thing where, you know, right now, especially if you need an hour or two to, to be able to do your work, um, you know, have them make a poster, do a, you know, um, whatever it is. I mean, it can be a, a PowerPoint presentation. And again, you can, you know, give that to the school in advance, send that to them um, and have them do a presentation on Zoom and start the meeting. And by default, you know, when you hear, and it can be like five slides. I mean, I have templates and stuff and I'm happy to send those out, but just, you know, from the student, what do they want? How do they feel like things are going right now? Um, and then I think, you know, in terms of collaboration, you just, you can't help it, but when that student starts the meeting, then I feel like all the adults around the table really come together. And I love that idea. Yeah, um, Lauren turned me on to that idea and, I, and I've used it since, I, it's really cool. Um, and one other thing I'd say is I, I'm sure any of the parents listening have been in an IEP meeting where they felt like they were just snowed under with data and information and, by the end of the meeting, you're like, okay, like, where do I have to sign, you know? Um, but it, it's an interesting kind of turn of the tables here because now the parents are so intimately involved in education that if you just plan a little bit, you know, have a, a, an Excel spreadsheet or document what you do on a regular basis, support it with any professional you know, documentation you have, you can walk into the meeting in the fall and and you're going to be able to snow them under with the information because you're the one who compiled the information. And again, we're not trying to pounce on the district because no one wants to have to make up a bunch of education, but um, you're kind of in charge at this point and you're giving them the information that the whole team needs to make a decision. I love that. Sarah, what would Owen's um, slide presentation to school include, do you think? Uh, it was 100% IEP include a Led Zeppelin song, <laughs> a dance party, um, a lot of discussion about his favorite snacks, a Lego competition of some sort, and uh, just holding the cat to the camera. Perfect. All of it. Five slides, right? That's all. Throw <laughs> yeah. a couple strengths and areas to improve, and that's all you need. I want to be there for that. Can you invite me to that? <laughs> I know. I'm like, now that I'm like, I kind of want to do like all Zoom IEP meetings now. Like, that's such a great idea. 
I used to do all mine like that. And, you know, I mean, it's obviously up to the student, but I've had students do everything. And, um, you know, I learn things too, right? And the people around the table learn things. And I feel like my toughest kids that are tough, you know, and they were tough for teachers, right? Um, But I feel like the teachers would come in and and probably have a lot of negative things to say about my kids. But then once they heard their presentation and and realized this kid put a lot of time into that, the, the tables totally turned, you know, and it really... Um, was about that kid. They took ownership in it, you know, so um, I, you know, my rule of thumb is really like third grade, second, third grade. I think for the most part, it doesn't mean the kid has to be there for the whole meeting either. I want to make that clear, right? They don't have to sit for an hour, hour and a half. They could come in for the first 10 or 15 minutes, present, you know, ask some questions, answer questions to the team, and then, you know, they don't have to stay. Yeah, I love it. I think one thing that, um, this whole experience has really taught me is that I have a tendency to underestimate my kids. Like they're so much stronger and more capable than I let them be sometimes. So I've really gotten to see like how flexible they are and how they can persevere through this. And it's been really inspiring just watching my kids Mm -hmm. get through the day when sometimes I can't. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. And they can make I a movie. They could do a movie if they, you know, if they don't want to present, right? They could do a movie in advance and just play it. So fun. I love that. Well, um, I think that is a great note to end on. Um, I just kind of want to say again, thank you to everybody who joined us. Um, all our experts here, Lauren, Mark, Danielle, you guys were great. All of the um, parents and participants who we had come and join us tonight. Um, I would love to do this again, anytime. Um, hopefully in the fall, we'll all be able to maybe talk face to face. Not sure (laughs) with our masks on. (laughs) We'll have to see. Um, but thank you guys again for, for joining us tonight. And, um, I just really appreciate all the work that y'all do, um, to help us out, to help our kiddos out, to keep that collaboration going. Um, it's very important work that you guys do. Very important. Thank you for being there for us. Yeah. So much for having us. We do appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to close it out. Um, So everybody, our listener family, thanks again for joining us at the kitchen table. Here is to the complexity in our journeys, the highs and lows. May those who observe us do so with compassion. We'll talk to everybody next time. Thanks.